A Brief History of Power with two white guys, Adam Koontz and I'm Jonathan Fisk. We are going to try to clean up a few things and answer viewer email rather than move on to discerning uh, the eighth tale of the Antichrist in this apocalyptic age of singularity and zeitgeist. But that's why you're here is because you don't know what's going to come next. So we're just going to dive right in. We've been asking you to write back to us and tell us what we're doing. And we got some really great feedback. I love this guy. I'm not going to give him my name right now, but this guy uh, sends me questions in other stuff that I do. He's he's an avid follower. He's a really great thinker, and he's never afraid to say, now wait a minute here, uh, Pastor Fisk. I, I, you know, you said this, but I read these books, and they say this. And so he, he gives nice pushback, and in a way that here with these questions, I think it's going to give us some nice, uh, what did you say a moment ago, a nice way to clean up. You know, if, you, if you're jumping in, you haven't followed all the 12 episodes up to this, you know, what are we really pushing on? Is it really just about memorizing history? No, there's meta. There's meta going on, and, and maybe Let's go. Before we go to the email, what's meta, Adam? What is meta? Meta is anything that sort of steps outside or is a level above or beyond kind of the level on which you're used to operating. So like in a play or a, a TV show, when the character talks directly to the audience, that's that's meta, so to speak, in that he's breaking the illusion of continuity and that the world works the way you've thought about it. Um, you step outside it for a second and you you look at things from a totally different perspective. Right. So I've heard that referred to as the fourth wall before in in some areas or in gaming. And now I'm not talking game theory per se, but tabletop gaming, meta gaming is when you stop playing like the ground game and you start going like third and fourth turn thinking about the game. You start gaming the game. And uh, particularly in uh, Magic the Gathering circles, metagaming is what it's about. Like there are, there are seventh, th- seventh graders playing the game and then you got all the adults, nerds, uh, metagaming. But the idea is what you're saying. Like they're going a step above. They're taking it to the yeah. next level. They're saying right. this is more than what I just see. There's an unseen reality, not necessarily spiritual, but certainly powerful um uh, taking place around us on all levels right from from gravity onward so what are we trying to get at and to let these questions sort of push us there so uh, our buddy our our listener our our one is it one listener no we've got more uh our our one listener that writes to us and and writes through my channels because i guess you're getting feedback too so i don't know what you're getting um but he says this and it's great he says when you talk about california and San Francisco, I only vaguely recognize the locale of which you speak because I live here. I think it's so interesting because California, like we speak about it like as a place, but that's like a planet. Like there, there's so much unique diversity in California. So to say California, you do have to be very specific what in fact you mean universally about the entire place, no matter what, right? And we have been maybe speaking that way a bit. And then the Bay Area is certainly its its own, dare I say, beast. Um, he comes on and says, I'm guessing this is partially due to me living in the white noise of the area and generalizations and characterizations made by you based on anecdotes Reporting, biased in multiple directions, um, I'm into that, uh, and some cocktail of cognitive biases, right? So, so he's asking us then to, um, to kind of distinguish which California we're talking about because it's not the one he seems to see. And if I can just say, he said Bay Area, and I'm pretty sure we've been talking about L.A., <laughs> right? Like as a Californian from San, from, uh, from San Diego who grew up or who went to college north of the Bay Area, it really – they are. They're different planets, L.A., Bay Area, same California, but not. Uh, and San Diego, being as close to LA as it is, I mean, you might as well be in in like Arizona. It's just it's just a different place. Um, so, 
I'll let you have your hack at that, though. You know, are we just kind of picking and choosing our spots? How do we help him? And he'll ask more, but how do we start with just this, you know, he doesn't see what we see. Right. And I think that um, a lot of the experience of modern life with its information overload is an experience of hearing takes and perspectives that are not your own and don't make a lot of sense, even when they're talking about something that you know. And that could just be because the person who's talking is just flatly wrong or insanely biased or something like that. I think it's also because we're dealing with scales of both time and space that are enormous. Hmm. So if I'm talking about California, I'm not talking about a person's day-to-day experience of you know, cutting lawns in a specific you know, county in California or someone's day-to-day experience of working, I don't know, in logistics at a bunch of warehouses somewhere way outside Los Angeles. And there are aspects of that that we haven't talked about, partly because the state is so huge and it's so important for understanding modern America. When we're talking about going down a rabbit hole, the point of that is that there are certain things that occur even within 10 miles of probably where you live, work, eat, and sleep every day that, are, that matter for where you live, whether that's California or Alaska or Georgia, and of which you know little or nothing. And partly life is that way because of the incredible pace of urbanization and economic change that we all live through so that a lot of things are sort of unknown to us. I'm not sure this is really natural for the human species, going back to talking about the politics of things being natural or unnatural, but it is the way that life works in modern America, such that even places that are really not that far from where you sleep every night are completely foreign to you. And I think that if I'm talking about, say, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is in Northern California, or the history of Silicon Valley and venture capital on Sand Hill Road, I'm not talking about even a mile away from Sand Hill Road. So what's weird is that I think not just this is not just a California thing, but what happens when there's enormous amounts of money and all kinds of different people flowing in and out and around a place, that place becomes strange or unknown even to locals in a way in which if you live kind of, quote, in the middle of nowhere, everywhere around you is fairly well known. There's also, quote, nothing going on. But (laughs) what there is, is fairly well known to you. And there's a lot more to be said there about small towns and how small towns are portrayed. But I would say that if places seem unrecognizable, that's partly because they're strange to us even when we are locals. So the last time when we talked about venture capital and I mentioned that there's sort of, there's already a graveyard of venture capital in America, which is sort of our first Silicon Valley, which was Eastern Ohio and Western Pennsylvania. Rust Belt. Yeah. The, the way that I'm talking about those places is going to sound unknown to people from those places. I mean, I was born in Pittsburgh and I never learned to think of Pittsburgh as a center of innovation amazing capital and enormous fortunes being made, you know, overnight. But there was a time when it was. But if I don't know the history, all of that is unknown. Right. It just makes it hard to understand how you are where you are. 
So proximity matters is what you're getting at. And in this way, the the American dream that I can be private from my neighbor, which I kind of like in a lot of ways, is in some ways an impossible dream because at a certain level, your neighbor's business is your business. When they're making crack in the basement, even if the windows are closed, (laughs) right, it can create problems for the entire neighborhood. And that's just like a really crass example. But the idea here is what's called – like in religious terms, you'd call this corporate sin, and that can dirty it for some listeners. But you really got to pull back and and realize – so corporate, like as in corporation, as in an embodiment that a group has. So group action – has consequences or blowback or, or, you know, cause and effect realities. And when you have forces that, that create and forces that destroy, when you have truths and lies, which I think everyone agrees there's some level of that going on, then your proximity to a pile of lies in which it's being used to what, do anything, it can't help but eventually impact you. And I don't know how else to say this. Uh, I mean, for some reason, what keeps coming around in my mind in this is a moment in Batman Begins. Me, you know, here I go with movies again. But, you know, Bruce Wayne is not yet Batman, and he's really struggling with who he is in this movie. He's trying to figure out um, what he's running from. And, you know, his parents died in front of him and all this stuff. So he's got this trauma he's dealing with. And he has this moment where the girl he loves takes him under the street of Gotham, which is, is made to look a lot like Chicago, where you have, like, the above-ground road and the underground streets that you can move through the city straight uh, quickly. And she starts pointing out, like, look, you're living up there, and then there's this down here. And if you go down into that place right there, there's the guy who's in charge of the entire place. And he actually goes in and, you know, nearly gets himself killed, and he, he ends up running away. Also, so, But the point is, like, there there is always economy going on in your neighborhood behind you, unless you know what it is. And the more that it becomes evil, the more you can't help it eventually just spilling out on you. Now, if we want to define evil differently, you and I are just going to define evil as like civilization versus barbarianism, right? Read, write, don't kill (laughs) Uh, versus smash, eat. And um, I almost said the F word, but it would be something more like uh, rape, right? That's the idea. Um, So um, proximity, matters. That's our point. But then, so let's go deeper than here because his next question is even better and takes it from like that surface answer we just gave, which really I don't think would apply to him actually. Um, but we'll see. Um, uh, he takes it a little deeper. So he goes on and he says this with a second question or a second statement at least. When you talk about the ruling elites slash the oligarchy, I know I'm not in there, but I certainly seem to dip in and out of the way you speak about the 1% elites. So I think it is important to figure out, like, golly, there's probably more than one layer of 1%, right? But he goes on, in this case, there is a mix and conflict between how I see the world based on how I've grown up and how I understand how elites live. And he's going to say more, but I think that's a good place for us to still kind of keep yeah. talking about with the 1%, the oligarchy. What do you find if you're in that 1%? I mean, in, and in one way, Adam, I think we've got to say, if you live in the northern hemisphere of this corner of the western hemisphere you're like you're in a one percent elite of a certain type no matter what right you, you, worldwide um for the moment at least but then there's th- what he's really talking about what we're really talking about is a different thing than that it's not just about the privilege of being an american or having uh, you know uh, prosperity here it's about a level of, of financial freedom in which what well, you have slaves effectively right um on a certain level I think, well, okay, 1% is a term that first became popular in a social movement no one remembers because it became awkwardly successful and was then co-opted. And that is Occupy Wall Street. Right. Which, I remember it. Which dates to kind of pre 
racialization of everything. Hmm. Um, yeah. So let me let me do let me do a little bit of history this episode, even though we're doing cleanup, and that is that people don't remember what Obama was promising in 2008. So Obama was at least vaguely anti-war. That was popular in lots of places. That was popular where I'm from, which is a place that people come from to fight those wars. Obama also was about moving forward. It was not about blame or rage. And whiteness had not yet been anathematized except in certain parts of the academy. So at that point, he's elected on a, on a platform of hope, hope and change. That was the idea. You know, si se puede. Uh, he was saying to get the Hispanic vote, and he did much better with Hispanics than um, than Hillary did, or or than I think Biden's going to do. So that was all good. Then we had an economic crash fairly early on, uh, you know, late in that that election year, and then early on in his first term. The turnaround. And if I'm not that, mistaken, hold on real fast. So if yeah. I'm not mistaken, because I did live through this, uh, and I do remember it very vividly, Bush's administration handled the initial fallout of the crash. The people he listened to, mainly Federal Reserve connections, were the ones that Obama would continue to listen to, and it, okay. everything with Enron yeah, and, and so forth. And there's a there's no, a great right. documentary called Inside Job that'll show you this. That you see both guys working with both pre- the same guys working with both presidents yeah. through this thing, and they're all guys who effectively fleeced the American public and, and stole lots and lots of money from us, and. Whether or not Bush knew the same way Obama knew, you, you decide which guy you hate more. But I'll yeah. just leave it at that. This whole thing went dirty early, and it wasn't necessarily Obama wanted to walk into that. I'm not going to claim that, but he didn't exactly stay clean once he realized what kind of power he. Well, could, yeah, there, there was use. there was effectively there was there was effectively no policy change, um, and there was continuity between the Bush and Obama administrations, which we've now we've now seen. There's lots of continuity between them, actually. But there was continuity in military policy. So Bob Gates was still Secretary of Defense. And there was continuity in economic policy. And the term bailout became common at that time. So Lehman Brothers went under, but but most things did not. And Wall Street did well out of that. Too big so, to fail is another important phrase out of that. Too, too big, big to, to fail. fail. And so on, on the right, and we can keep going on, I hate the terms left and right, but on the quote right, you had the Tea Party, which was originally pretty organic. Its co-option came later. And yeah, and again, for, for living through this and just watching it, the yeah. Tea Party looked like Trump rallies. It was just Trump rallies. It, lo- and it looked like Trump rallies, and it was anti-immigration, which no one remembers. Now, that is it, true, cause correct. Because then it became about like budgets. But it was like about anti-illegal immigration. It was about loss of jobs. I don't believe yeah. it was straight anti-immigration. We're shutting, I don't know, but I don't think it was straight. But also lost in that though is, have you, I'm sure you've seen this, the ramp up in numbers of immigration percentage wise in the, in the maybe 20 years prior to that. Buchanan's got a book on this I read way back then. And what happens is you do have a shift from a certain absorbable level of enculturation, like a one to 2% growth of new populace every year. And this isn't just about English. It's about, you know, I know the constitution. I can vote. I care. Right. Um, we went from like 2% to something like 8% is our average. And it was the first time in our history we did that. I don't remember the Buchanan book. Do you have, do you have familiarity with any of that? This is like. I- same era. I, mean, I, I know Buchanan's stuff, but I don't know. I don't know that book specifically. I mean, I, I think. Um, but again, the idea that on. immigration ramped up. And so some of the Tea Party's blowback, again, isn't like we hate immigrants so much as 
something changed about immigration in the last 30 years, and it's harming where those people live, right? Well, it went it went a lot faster, but I think that that particular story goes back to the '60s. Um, hmm. I think on the right you have the Tea Party, on the left you have what becomes Occupy Wall Street, which what they meant was they were occupying Zuccotti Park in Manhattan. That's how it starts. There were then copycats across the country, but the one in Zuccotti Park is really pivotal for understanding two things that change in the last decade in the United States. And one is what gets, is just the organizing principle for how the rallies work daily at Occupy Wall Street. And that is the progressive stack. So you have, you have a race, you have a gender, you have a class identification, you, you have an age identification, you have identification according to abilities and disabilities. And depending on, so if you're like, if you're like a trans Latinx, you get to talk obviously before a white male, but also before a white female. And this is all the way back in Occupy 2008. This is Occupy, right? And is so, it in the copycats or just in the New York one? Um, I know it's the New York one. I don't know about all the copycats. Okay. I mean, I think I think they did it in Philly. I think they occupied Dilworth Park right outside City Hall in Philly. Right on. But How old were so, you when all this is going on, by the way? I was out of college. Okay, so you are old enough to have adult memories of it. <laughs> I'm just wondering, because I, I, as you're talking about it, I'm like, why is he even, this isn't history. And then I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I just got older than I thought. So please continue. So what that that's one thing is the progressive stack. And that's going to, that's going to snowball into the way that the left works mm. today openly, obviously. Yeah. The other, the other thing that comes out of that is the term, the 1%. And I want to say right now that I think the term 1% was always a misdirection because the left always behaves the same way in, an, in its pursuit of power. And this is how it behaves. And this goes at, at least back as far as the Russian Revolution. They will demonize everyone above a certain income level. And that is honestly, regardless of where you have ethnic diversity, like in Russia or the United States, they'll do that. That doesn't mean that everybody in that, let's say, tax bracket in American terms will actually suffer at all. And it is certainly the case that in like the case of the Russian Revolution, as well as in the case of a lot of these agitation groups, including Antifa today, that people at the very top of the 1% in terms of income are actually funding those movements of political and social change. Why would they do that is the question most people will ask. And I'll, I'll just give a short answer because they're making money doing it. It helps them. That's why. But you can give yeah. the, re, you know, the longer. Well, it, it also solidifies their power. So let me explain what happens in Russia. And then I think you can kind of see where they're going with this in the United States. What happens in Russia is that that's going to lead to the liquidation of everyone who has enough money and enough just sort of intrinsic power by virtue of what they own and what they want to hold on to, to challenge the people at the very top, right? So in Russia, that, that results in, the, in what's called the liquidation of the kulaks, K-U-L-A-K, who are landowning peasants. That is people that have something to hang on to. Mm -hmm. Once you make once you make it the case that there are people at the very top who have unassailable power and money, and then the vast majority of the population is kind of landless and rootless and poverty stricken, then the people at the very top really have a hold on power. Whereas if you have anything in between that, right? So mm -hmm. if we talked in terms of California about a middle class or in the case of the modern United States, if you have people 
who are quote 1% as to their income, but that's because they own a business that employs 200 people. That person is not at all somebody who's going to be bailed out by the federal reserve, <laughs> right? His, his still small business is actually endangered by the incredible power of the banks over him. So he's not actually benefiting when the federal reserve bails out wall street, but he's in the quote 1%. So I think that was always a term that was used as a form of misdirection because that guy that employs 200 people is probably the mainstay of his small town, maybe in inland California, maybe in Nebraska, maybe in Massachusetts. Mm. And in tax terms, he's in the 1%, but he will be liquidated because his power, which could be exercised really only locally, needs to be taken out from under him in order for you know that small town to be very susceptible to things like real estate speculation, right. all kinds of things that really are going to benefit people far away. I, I think most people are going to have trouble believing anybody could have one the I got three things. One, the wherewithal. Two, the intelligence. And then three, uh, the closed lips to pull off this kind of plan over this kind of long. It just sounds a little... Well, the FBI sounds like they're yeah, right. Tinfoil. The conspiracy yeah, right. theorists are wearing yeah. tinfoil hats and, and go on and go on, right? Right. Well, I, I, I don't think it... I mean, you don't really need... You don't even need to look in the future and say, okay, is this going to happen to what remains of the middle class or even in tax terms, the upper middle class in the United States, you can look at what has already occurred, right? right? So everything that kind of comes between a distant authority and you is what is kind of gradually erased from American right. life. Right. So the DC, by noise at least, has increasingly more power over my front yard uh, than, than it did once upon a time, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And in that way, we're, we're just kind of moving back toward... Well, but see, our, our study of the history of power is that all, all powers consolidate into larger ones until they get so big that the, what, they, they kind of cut off their own reason they got there and then collapse on their own weight. But another one arises to take their place. Um, whether you see this as, as – um, oh, no, I'm going to lose – how can I lose? Heidegger? Heidegger? Not Heidegger. Who's uh, – oh, for basics. The symmetry, the rising and falling of thesis and antithesis. Antithesis throughout history. Talk about Hegel. There we go. Thank you. I knew yeah. it had an H in it. Um, whether we're talking <laughs> about Hegel or whether we're talking about, say, the beasts of Revelation, right? It's kind of the same idea that you have this play for power that is is going back and forth. It can never quite be held, and yet it never stops being held for a time by some. And again, though, who could keep the secret today, or is it even being kept? Maybe that's the question. Like, well, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I think talking in terms of secrets lends itself already to you being judged to be crazy, right? Right. right. But so, if you talk about it, like, okay, concretely, what what has occurred? So, one thing that's occurred is that we've made it really, really easy for foreign real estate investors to buy up tons of real estate in the United States not in order to live there or to develop it or anything. And the same thing has happened in Britain and Australia, but it's really there as kind of a place for foreign investors at this point, largely Chinese to park their money and make sure that the asset appreciates. Right? So if you look at it that way, it's like, okay, our tax, our tax is actually set up as we talked about last time in favor of real estate and not just in favor of real estate, but also this makes it easier to get an American visa and eventually American citizenship, which is much more legally stable for a property owner. 
even somebody that you know live actually lives somewhere in you know southeastern China, for example. Yeah, it, that's much. We have set it up to benefit that person. Okay. On the other hand, what are the things that are actually occurring? One of the things that's occurring is that the closer you get to, let's say, a population whose average age is 25 in the United States, the less share of wealth that population is going to have. So boomers have a really enormous percentage of um, American wealth, uh, Xers less, millennials still less, Zoomers who are still coming into adulthood still less than that. So when you look at it that way, you see that, okay, it's actually getting harder to buy a house if you actually live here full time. So you don't really have to say like, okay, well, what's the secret? What are they trying to do? What is George Soros trying to do? And, you know, (laughs) social media controls you by kind of feeding you specific. So Soros, it used to be used on Fox News. Still, it runs around as a name on Twitter for people to blame for things. And boogeyman. yeah, right. He's he's kind of a boogeyman. Okay, that's that's fine or not fine, depending on your you know political predilections. But you don't really need a specific figurehead. You can just look at the things that occur. That gradually, it's harder and harder to buy a house if you actually want to live here your whole life and have. And it's easier and easier legally and financially to buy a house and to park your money there if you made your money and you live somewhere else. So it's not really a secret or a conspiracy necessarily in the sense that like a bunch of guys got together quietly and decided they needed to kill Julius Caesar. They carried that out and he was surprised. It's more just like, this is the way we are gradually being hollowed out. And not, I'm not saying that every single person of whatever income level actually feels that way or, or that or is planning it, right? Like, like it's not like yeah, everyone up there thinks this is what's happening. It. It's just kind yeah. of happening as everyone suits their own need, right? And it right. hungers for their own because they're all trying to clamor for what Nassim Taleb, who I quote, who often would call asymmetry, that is a risk-free environment. And by doing so, they have to shove the risk onto others. And then, again, this creates these very unstable systems. I, I want to – you mentioned um, – I just got to throw it out there because it's true and it's important to know even though it's sad and trying to be angry at your parents and your grandparents about it because they didn't know because they were watching too much TV. But the boomers, who indeed have a greater share of wealth than any generation that has come after them and likely will than any generation that has come after them, are also spending it with abandon, as if every generation after them will just have as much lying around. And not just then the spending of the items, but then the the selling of the farm to do so. Hence, you know, land not getting past generation to generation. I keep trying to press this on my kids. They keep you poor by making you buy your own house every generation. That's how they do it. And if you want to get out of that now, you guys like your last generation to really have a chance to get some land before it is pressed out of you. They already shoved it out of a lot of farmers in the Midwest in the 30s and 40s anyway, right? It's like you find a way to get them off the land once they've developed and settled it and made it safe, and it's easier for you. Uh, And why would you not just do that if it's in front of you and you can and you have no reason not to? I mean – Yeah, and I I, I think when you're talking about like proximity, right, so – don't just think of this as like, okay, two streets over, who is the guy who was born in Azerbaijan that I don't know? And what is his mental universe like? And what foods does he eat? And where does he work? And why did he come here? And when? (laughs) Which is a situation created by um, America's immigration policy. Think also about your family, right? We're all trained, me and the Azerbaijani immigrant and my own children are trained 
by the situation to think of America as a casino. And in the casino, my neighbors don't matter unless I'm playing poker against them. Right. They, 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 they don't matter. They, it doesn't really matter who that guy is or whether or not we have anything in common. It doesn't matter because we're all just trying to get rich. So proximity is completely irrelevant in the case that I'm living inside a casino. If I'm living in a place that is actually a historically normal place, then proximity really matters because I'm planning not only to have grown up here and then to live here and then to raise my children here, I'm planning for my grandchildren to live here. Right. So the guy next to me really does matter what kind of a person he is or who he is or what he's now, about. I'm going to stop because I'm going to tell you, anybody over 40 has never had the thought that's an option in life. And they certainly have, to, have not told, let alone train their kids to think that's an option in life, let alone the expectation for their children. I'm beginning to have those conversations with my kids and thank God they're open to the idea. They realize, yeah. at least at this point, verbally to me, uh, that the the crazy white noise world out there might not be worth taking on on your own if you can like hunger down and work together and, and well, eat and enjoy each other too at the same time, right? Like and not be around people you don't like all the time. Yeah. But that's crazy talk, Adam. I mean, to, to say your kids are going to live in the same neighborhood or town as you generally as a plan, like you can't control that. They're going to, I mean, they have to live their lives. They need to experience college. I mean, all these right. things. So I, people have been asking me like, well, what do I do based on all this stuff that you guys are talking about? And I think- Are we, are we causing answer, some existential crises? Yeah, I think, I think so. And I think that's good. I, I think that if you don't have an existential crisis and you live in the modern United States, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah. You're drugged up, not paying attention. <laughs> but I don't think it's actually that complex. I mean, I, a lot of things are, very, are, are fascinating. I find them fascinating. I want to know more about them. But there's a sense in which it's not necessarily that complex. And part of the reason that I have chosen to spend and, and plan to spend my entire life somewhere inside the Rust Belt is because it is a it has already been passed over by the by the Empire and yeah. by its ghouls. Yeah. Yeah. No one is coming for us. Tatooine. No one is no, no one is <laughs> no one is trying to make it amazing and awesome. And I like that. Hmm. That's good because I can carve out something in a forgotten place. Now that a place is that is that is, is semi-true. Now, what about, though, if there if there happens to be enough – I mean, I'm jumping to the worst possible scenario, yeah. of course. You know, But there's enough gasoline being thrown on the fire of the racial divide that you literally see color on color for the sake of the color crime beginning to yeah. take place anywhere within the vicinity of, say, a city over 600,000. Right, all those cities, all in the country, we see at least small bands of uh, black lives and white lives and brown lives guarding themselves against each other. Right, yeah. in that world, is the Rust Belt still a dream for you? Well, no. that's what I want to know. I, I say no, yes. That's I, what I want to know. I think it is. I, I think it well, still I, is actually. It, we have more potential. To have good race relations, even if it's carefully eked out amongst uh, violence, right? Not violence, but uh, violent intent or fear in the Rust Belt than we do in, in any other city, honestly. Even even Rust Belt big cities are going to be more – because they've been passed over for so long. There's like, you know, I just want to go back to life, right? What are they trying to get as opposed to, you know, you can't really sack Madison Fifth Ant Madison Street, Madison Fifth Avenue, whatever it is. Madison Avenue. Madison Avenue. Yeah. Hey, you can't really sack that in what? I don't know, Waco, Texas. I've been, I don't know. I, I think I think that um 
I think that when you're, when you're talking about forgotten places of which the Rust Belt is really only one, you're talking about somewhere that what people have in common with neighbors is really kind of all they have, hmm. which I think is a better start for human community than a place where what they have in common is some enormous corporation that is still a lifeline for them or some real estate situation or real estate market on which everyone was sort of banking, which is um, maybe the story of large parts of Florida. So I think that race I never relation, thought about I never thought yeah. about the housing market as Russian roulette, but it's so right. Dear well, heavens, I mean, that's, it's it, Russian it, roulette. It also, always, it also always has been. And um, real estate speculation in American history is kind of drives a lot of the engine. But, but I, I, I think that when you're talking about living in a forgotten place, the reason to do that is because you're basically just waiting for local relationships, whether they're between races or with a person who lives next door to you or something, to take priority over whatever is being fed from wherever people are being propagandized. Because, th because those local relationships will end up being more real and I think we've seen that with things like churches and COVID enforcement and COVID rules, even within states, even Rust Belt states, those local relationships have become more important than they were and maybe more important than the more distant relationships between, you know, that place and the state house or that place in Washington. Right. Which is why, I mean, I've gone out of my way now, and maybe this is wrong, but I've gone out of my way to be more attentive to every relationship I have as I'm out and about my neighborhood to, yeah. to intentionally make eye contact, to act more like I'm in a small town than a city, make eye contact and nod, even if they're like about to look away. Cause everyone just normally looks away really fast. They're all nervous, but just nod yeah. at them, smile at them. Hey, what's up? And just, just do it because I want my local community to feel that everyone here belongs here, uh, regardless of who we are. So that when the meta from outside starts saying, you guys should hate each other. We're like, well, no, no one here does. So, you know, we don't like each other. Maybe <laughs> uh, we don't have to hate each other. Right. Um, so neighbors, neighbors matter. And, you know, if you're buying your food from someone who is supposed to be in the wrong team uh, at a certain point, don't you both need each other more than the teams? And, the crazy thing, Adam, is that in history, that's not always true. I mean, people give up their neighbors and even their parents under certain types of pressures uh, and, and whatnot under various regimes. So I don't know. I, putting back in the existential crisis, you know, what do you do? Let me push us back to this, the rest of this question here, too, so we don't miss the, the end of it. Yep. He says, uh, all I can say, uh, all that to say, can you talk about how to straddle the line between the worlds which I seem to be caught whether or not I admit to being in either world. I'm sure there must be historical examples of people who walk this tightrope. So he is asking, like, like if I find myself in an actual power world, right, mm -hmm. um, yeah. what does that mean a little bit? At least that is my perception based on all the fish-out-of-water movies I've seen in my life. And I'm going to say also, I think in the American context, you have more access to this world than you realize because you can talk to your congressman. And if you make yourself a burr uh, in your congressman's ear, you do have access to D.C. You have to do it. It's still working hard. They might not make it easy right away. But there's something here to see that we're all not as far away from this game as we have to be or as, as we are, as they put us. Um, there are still uh, avenues open to you. Although I would say that by and large, as we said, proximity matters more. So your congressman that goes to your state 
Congress matters more than your congressman that goes to your national Congress. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, so both those things matter. And you want to talk about being able to have influence. Well, I'm pretty sure your, your local congressman for your state is going to listen to you. He will. Um, call him. And, and I mean, they, they almost don't have handlers. Uh, the ones here barely do. I've tried. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that if you have some relationship to some part of what power uh, exists in you know, this Americo-Hungarian empire, you have to understand that it's fragile and you need to think about what your ultimate allegiances are. Hmm. Not that you have to exit whatever world you are, at least in a glancing way, part of that could be beneficial to you and your own, whoever those people are or whatever reasons you have for those being your own. But it's not really finally natural or possible to simply be an individual because especially hmm. in times of crisis, you belong to a group. So if you have if you have some sort of, you know, the situations that you were talking about, Jonathan, earlier of like social collapse, uh, racial conflict, I'm finally just white. Um, it really doesn't matter what my nuanced opinions are on the history of American race relations. If there is violence in a neighborhood, I'm white. And I don't really have a choice. And I, I can't problematize that by being like, no, please. I'm Alsatian American. I'm not white, or some something stupid. But right, true, well, I, I but, majored but, in critical race theory, so please don't right. shoot me. Or if, yeah, something finally useless. So you're always going to have groups, and they don't—they're not necessarily racial. They could be your church group. They could be your family. Whatever. You're going to have allegiances to those groups, and I think that when we're talking about what is natural, part of the reason that um, that you know things like a group identity of all kinds exists is because human beings are actually built to function as members of a group. Yeah. We're not, we're not, we're not built like wolves are to hunt on our own. We're actually built to hunt uh, certain wolves. We're built to hunt in a pack. That's what I was going to say. I was saying, some wolves yeah. are pretty good at the pack stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but they always need an alpha, which is interesting because they're not they so do. different. We're they not do. so different. And we're, so as, as, as natural members of a group, that doesn't mean that you have to cut yourself off from every group that is not completely aligned with you or may actually be like antithetical to your group. Especially if you are operating some circle of power, whether it's corporate or military or whatever, ecclesiastical, it doesn't matter. Use that for whatever ultimate good you have as much as you can without compromising yourself. I think that's only smart. That's only prudent. But you don't have to be like, the point of discussing these things is not a kind of like Marxist analysis of who should be ashamed and who should really have power. That's not really the point. But the point is that you don't want to finally be a parasite upon your own group, yeah. which is if you think of life in terms of a casino, that's all anyone ends up as. You become a parasite even on your own family, upon your own children, which is totally unnatural because it's natural for a parent to give to children, not for a parent to take from children. Right. And so you want to be somebody who's ultimately building up whatever the group that matters most to you is. So I think the assertion that humans are not, can, cannot ultimately exist as individuals, like there might be that one 
outlier, right? You get your curve. Far outliers, a couple of people really like to be alone forever, and they live in the woods in the middle of nowhere with no electricity. And they do actually yeah. exist. I watched a documentary about them too, but they're pretty <laughs> rare. They're pretty rare. Yeah, the guy makes yeah. his own poop into dirt and then like smells this. It was crazy. That was the one of the weirdest documentaries I've ever seen. He was just one of there them, right? Lady built her house out of dirt and tires and wore like clothing. She made out of sackcloth, and she was some like re- like like thirty seven year old lawyer going up to live in British Columbia. Weird. Uh, anyway, it, aside from that, right? Yeah. Individual existence as a human is by and large impossible and certainly not once power slash violence becomes the norm, right? If there is a breakdown in civilization, which history says happens all the time and should get used to it, it even happens and then goes off and on in town sometime. Um, Whenever there's a breakdown in civilization, the individual – and the belief in American individualism that we've been been given that we can just kind of handle it, we'll just kind of get through it, we'll be fine, it's our game – that all just goes out the window, right? And, and that yeah. to know that and to see that humans are better and stronger when we stand in a pack, right? Not a mob, yeah. per se, although that works too. We're, we're made that works, for that this. That works for a while. Well, I mean, while. it seems yeah. to be better and stronger than an individual, right? Sure. Especially yep. an individual just talking. So just that idea that individuality is impossible, I think, is is so counter to the American meta narrative that the TV drones into the assumption about American life. And everyone's going to say, of course, I like I have my friends. Like they're everyone's gonna, everyone thinks we're all group thinkers, but we're not. We're one of the most narcissistic you know, civilizations ever. And then we're out there, by and large, trying to survive on our own in this casino where we're buying stuff at the supermarket, right? I mean, okay, that's all good. Now, I'm, I'm going to say one more thing. You can respond to whatever I said, but I, I listen. I try not to listen to Shapiro, but I do. And and I listen to Shapiro on um, – because he always makes me angry, by the way. But his Sunday evening specials don't make me angry because he interviews a good guest. And he had Megan Kelly on this week. And uh, I didn't know much about Megan Kelly other than kind of like she was a lot of noise once upon a time. Her story is interesting because here's somebody who had the absolute top, absolute top of cable news life. One percent. She was actually kind of there sort of or at least influencing playing the game. Mm-hmm. And she walks away from it in her words because she wanted time with her kids, which isn't something by itself. She ends up taking like a part-time gig at NBC because they talk her into it and she gets just crucified through that process, ends up without any of that work. Um, now is coming back years later, a couple years later with her own podcast, starting her own company and all this. Mm-hmm. Very interesting woman. I don't agree with everything she said on, on a number of issues, but to hear her talk about, she had to ask, this is your, to your point about conviction, like she went away from all of it, in the middle of it, visited a friend out somewhere. I think she even said it was a Rust Belt. It was, it was like a Rust Belt-like place. Visits a friend, goes out to a pub, is drinking, she said, 50-cent beers with her friend. Mm-hmm. Has no, her friend's got no money, lives paycheck to paycheck. And she realized her friend was so much happier than she was. Her friend was so much more glad to be living than she was. Right. And so when she got... Uh, released from NBC, she was actually glad, and and she didn't come back at all, and you know she fell off the map a little bit because it was like, maybe I don't want that, right? So that's where the conviction point is. You're saying use it when you have it, and if you got it and you can, and this goes for any level of power, any authority you've been given, use it when you have it for the good you have it for, but don't don't think for a moment you can't let go of it because that's when it becomes something you're going to use for evil, right? Uh, you you have to be able to release it. The story of Megyn Kelly sort of resembles um, Ben Shapiro's trajectory, although he didn't he didn't fall off the media wagon the way she did. He pivoted but, faster and sooner, right? Yeah, they they both went hard against Trump, and then Ben kind of stopped that openly. Megyn Kelly didn't. 
and she kind of had more to lose because finally she just was getting a W two. She didn't she didn't own right. the show. Right. And her her dad is nobody, whereas Shapiro is right. where he is. Right. So so what the lesson there is that basically Shapiro's interviewing her to rehabilitate her, but right. also because he's in a position of somebody who isn't on his own and never was and never will be. Right. Because he can build on what came before. And so I think I think when you're when you think about that way he has reacted and I'm, I'm really not a fan at all. He's been very sardonic about Christianity. Yeah. However, what he has been successful in doing is keeping himself alive and metaphorically, I suppose. Why are you not a fan? What's your, I mean, I, I'll give you, I give you my reason too, but I want to know what is yeah. your primary reason for not being a fan of Shapiro? Because his entire style is designed to provide the sense that you're getting something real and hard hitting and true right. without real hard hitting true things needing to be discussed. Right. So every day it's a big crazy fear bait. Right. Yeah. Even though maybe yeah. there's one all year that we really are dealing with or three, but like every day is like is the same level. There's no yeah. and, ebb and, and flow. And he he also the the thing when I'm looking at like a media personality or something, I always want to examine like what are they actually doing? So he actually lives in Los Angeles. He's going to move to Nashville like every other hipster. And he's doing that. Basically, th this is not so much, uh, if I can kind of say it this way, this is not so much about Trump or Trump-specific policies as for the massive disdain for people who like those things that I have seen within the ruling class right along the way from Trump coming down the escalator right down to today. Right, right, right. And that is that because our empire is so fractured, I'm not even talking about the 1%. I'm talking about basically the people who get to be on TV. They neither know nor understand what happens in the rest of America. And so they neither know nor understand why Trump would be as massively popular as he's been. Is that and, why is that why uh, Shapiro continues to trust the polls so much? Well, yeah, the Cuz I just the whole thing with polls is that what you find if you dig down is that they're basically always oversampling Democrats, which is why you're getting the results that you're getting, which are which are if you compare polls from 2020 to 2016. Pretty similar. They're similar, but but Biden is still doing worse, even in those polls where Democrats are being oversampled by 10 to 20 percent in some cases. Wow. So that's I mean, that that's what's going on. We don't we don't have I mean, the media is a, is a lying press. That's, now, that's so now Shapiro says he's moving from California, not because he's a yuppie, but because California, he's sick of living there. He's going to put his money where his mouth is. He can't stand the policies. And so, yeah. I mean, I got to give him like at least half of that's true. I'm going to trust that like he's, he's going to run his company with a better deal where he's moving. He's moving his company. I would do that. I'd leave California right now, regardless of, you know, if Trump fans needed me there or not. So I don't know. You got me, but I'm, I, I agree with you. I can see it. And yet... The bigger issue, I think, is to see that he does talk like and play like the elite still, and so he doesn't get the Trump movement for what it really is. And when I hear him critique yeah. it, I think I think you're only like one-eighth of what we see or what people are seeing of this guy. And for whatever reason, I guess in that sense, he's a good example of how the left views Trump and that there's just only this one way of viewing him, which is in this classic FDR you know, yeah, Kali. Yeah, an FDR image. He's got to be the next FDR. And Obama, for everything he did that was a lot like Trump, huh, um, 
he just carried that FDR image. And if if and Shapiro's point is if if Trump would pretend to be FDR, everyone would like him, everything would be fine, we'd have this amazing Republican victory. I'm not sure I buy that either. I don't think that's true at all. I do. I really don't. No, no. And I, I think I think the the gauge of what he doesn't understand about Americans is that you know Mel Gibson's going to make some follow up to the Passion of the Christ. I don't know what it's going to be about acts. I don't know. But Shapiro retweets this. I think he's deleted the tweet since then. But he retweets that story and then says Passion Two. He won't be crossed again. So this guy is moving to Tennessee. And I, I thought it was pretty funny. Sorry, that's really awful. But golly. yeah, I mean, I I don't, I don't, <laughs> uh, because not a, even if I were not a Christian, you want to be in favor of you know conserving America. Theoretically, you're on the quote right, right. But you want to mock the historic religion of the American population, really of any race. Uh, that's that's what Americans are. Well, that, that is what Americans are. That is what Americans are, though. You're right, though. What makes America great I mean, is cyn- not, cynicism not, and comedy. Yeah. I mean, really. I'm not going to move to Israel and make fun of Judaism. Right. I'm not going to move to Indonesia right. and make fun of Islam. That's right. not That's not my right. And so, but he's going to move to Tennessee, head, you know, headquarters of the Southern Baptist Convention, and make fun of Christianity. So I think what you see there is that the point here is really neither left nor right. It's not really about tax brackets or tax policy. It's really more about, are, am I in favor of normal people who go to work every day, whether they live in California or Tennessee? Do I understand them? Do I seek to understand them? He's not even trying. That's my issue. Um, he's not even trying, which is why he doesn't understand. This is, this is kind of the difference. I mean, say what you will about Trump. I think he has some sense of understanding for normal people that go to work every day. I think it's pretty clear he does because I mean, the media won't show this, but like throughout the whole four years, he's using, you could even call it abusing, the powers of his office to like do nice things for people, like constantly. And he's bringing in people who I'm like, how does he even know these people exist? Well, he's listening to somebody who said, there's these people who need help and you're the president and you can sign a paper and do this. He's like, let's do it. You know, I mean, like, like. I don't know. I don't like the yeah. guy. I, I I didn't vote for him. I will vote for him because I've been compelled to it by the other side. And at the same time, he continues to shame me because the reason I don't like him is just because I don't like him. And he continues to be a, a more Republican president than, well, I can't Reagan. I mean, Reagan, maybe it'd be interesting to compare them and the Republican historical process and like what it means to stand as a constitutionalist side by side and let their 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 warts show all the way across right i mean they would be a a good fight but he's been that kind of president and uh, he will leave that kind of impact i saw today i mean we're just gonna be a week out coming out but i saw today um bannon came out and said that if trump loses or if they steal it whichever one um he's running again in 2024 which makes a lot of sense um (laughs) it really does uh you know um go ahead pack the court right and uh so we're at three minutes left here i want to make sure we we go back and say all right, so California or Las Vegas, where else have we talked about in the U.S.? Pennsylvania, Chicago. Like, you go into those places and you are going to find a Babylonian supermarket of random worldviews, metas, ideas, infusions, and cross-whatevers, right? And so right. what we're talking about is histories that we think we can see decades to century-long patterns 
based upon certain significant events that haven't had other significant events push the the, the barometer back the other direction yet. And so we're forecasting um, based upon, again, just these trajectories. And it doesn't mean everywhere you see that all the time. Uh, in fact, if I recall, uh, some of these are most, most powerful images I remember, I think this was from my visit of Auschwitz, um, are the pictures of the German ladies, this video of German ladies who lived like two miles away being walked in by troops to show them what was done, the bodies, and then after being walked out. And you see these women walking in, laughing, and walking out in tears. Um, and, uh, you know, again, we haven't done Holocaust yet here. Uh, it's a fascinating topic on its own. But the fact being that, you know, two miles away, you didn't even know, right, what was going on underground. So um, why would we assume any different the, the, the meta-narrative of, well, America's great, nothing bad ever happens here. Well, the whole left says that's not true. Vote for the people who've been running it the whole time. They'll make it better somehow. And then the right has got a, what, a megamalianical guy who loves business and his own ego. And so he's just standing in the way of the lizard people because just because, right? I mean, what a time to be alive, Adam. What a time to be alive. You bring this home? Give us, give us a closing word. Yeah, I think um, when you're thinking about history, the reason that you want to know what's going, what has happened is not because it's what you're seeing every day. It's so that you can begin to supply your own way of thinking about things other than whatever smorgasbord of movies and, uh, you know, scrolling on your phone that you've recently done. You can begin to provide yourself with something coherent that makes sense, not just of America broadly or an entire state or the Bay Area or something. Um, but your own neighborhood so that in learning how those things are and how they came to be and what could happen to them, you can begin to construct something that will actually be good for you and yours long term and can hopefully withstand some of the storms that that are already happening and, and that we see coming. A brief history of power with two white guys, Jonathan Fisk, Adam Coons. Adam, what are we going to do next time? I am not sure, but I can give you a bunch of options. Yeah, give me some options right now. <laughs> I think I, I I think one thing that we can do is kind of leave America for a while. It might be easier to see things. So um, I've got some thoughts about the Ottomans. Um, I've got some thoughts about Austria-Hungary um, and how that kind of broke up and various worlds that were lost. So we've got that. We've always got American stuff. I've got. I I, I never run out of topics. I. Uh, the only thing that I struggle well, to come okay. up with is I mean, how to bring it all together. Yeah, it does sound about as far removed from reality as possible to say. Let's let's talk about – let's start with where the heck the Ottoman Empire came from. Give me that in like three minutes to start, and then we'll go where you want to go with the Ottomans. But we have to like tell people – I mean this is like – nobody knows, man. Austro-Hungarian right. no, like, no – and you happened. actually referred to the you know American Ottoman – you made a – Americo-Hungarian. Yeah, yeah, so you made a reference to it that I, yeah. I picked up on, but I actually don't know the no really why you would say that. You clearly have developed the, the theory that the Ottoman Empire is a, a real picture for the history of the entire West and where we're going, right? And so yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a style share or a rhyme in place um i'm sorry so let's do that you know we got that for next time for sure um and then uh that probably won't get us to napoleon someday we'll get to napoleon and if you ever want to just uh throw one at the wall we're, we're hanging on to assassins 
just crazy assassin stories. We got to do there that sometime. Go. So, hey, if you want to talk good. back to us, you can find Adam by going to ctsfw.edu and searching for his name and finding his email. He actually puts his email out there so you can get it right to him and annoy him and send him stuff and ask him to do things for you. I'm tougher. You got to go refuse.com slash contact and go through my peoples, but that'll get your question on the show a lot faster. So you can do it that way as well if you want to have us do another entire episode geared toward your amazingly deep insights that challenge us and yet don't throw us off because, well, we're uh, two white guys and um, we're, we're not fragile at the moment. 